Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Lizzie, thanks very much for reading. Uh, Andy, thanks for leading us. Do keep, please keep your Bibles uh, open in front of you. We're, um, if you've not been here these last uh, few weeks, uh, since the beginning uh, of uh, this new year, we've been working through uh, Mark chapters 9 and uh, now 10, and uh, we'll be going into chapter 11 as well. So that's why we have this passage uh, before us. Uh, this morning. Uh, I guess uh, you feel it uh, as well. I certainly feel that knowing the truth of the gospel brings with it huge responsibility. There is the the obvious responsibility of evangelism. Uh, You know, once I know the gospel, I need to pass it on. It's not an overstatement to say the gospel is a matter of life and death, uh, of eternal life and eternal death. The stakes could not be higher. I feel that, that responsibility. But then there's another responsibility. I mean, there's lots of them, but here's, here's another one too, or at least one aspect of what I've just said. Back in Mark chapter 8, which is kind of where this section begins, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we're told that to follow Jesus, he says, means denying ourselves and taking up our cross, being ready to die for him. Following Jesus then will not be easy. It won't get universal approval. Indeed, in chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus tells us that we must not be ashamed of his words. Why does he tell us that? Because living for him, we are tempted at times to be ashamed of his words because the way he speaks is so countercultural, so different from the way the world lives. Uh, following him will, will give us huge decisions to make. I feel the responsibility of that when I'm telling other people about Jesus. I'm thinking they, it's not going to be an easy ride if you turn to Jesus. And, of course, I feel that myself. It won't make us popular. And because most of us like to be liked, I certainly like to be liked. Please like me. We are very tempted at times to be ashamed of Jesus' teaching because we know if we follow his teaching and teach his teaching, we'll not be liked. Now, that sort of sense of being ashamed or that temptation to be ashamed is certainly the case when we come to his teaching this morning in Mark chapter 10, and this question of marriage and divorce. Turn with me to Mark 10 and and to our first point then, and if you like taking notes, then here's a heading for you, the trap, uh, verses one and two. 
Verse 1, Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people came to him. As was his custom, he taught them. As Jesus crossed the region of Judea, it looked like business as usual. Just another day at the office, if I can put it in those terms. Crowds of people swarming around Jesus like bees around a honeypot. And these human bees wouldn't have been disappointed, verse 1, as, as he taught them, as was his custom, they'd have received honey from the lips of the sage. But then if this were made into a film, cue the sinister music, verse 2, some Pharisees came. Da, da, da. Our temptation as the Pharisees walk onto the stage is to boo and hiss these pantomime villains And that temptation, though, is not just born out of an inbuilt prejudice against them. We're right to balk against them, to balk what they're up against, what they're up to. Look what Mark says in verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him. They were laying a trap, a serious snare that could be fatal for Jesus. Verse 2, they asked him about divorce and while that's a sensitive, a sensitive subject at any time seeing the geographical location in verse 1 alerts us to the fact that talking about divorce was a very dangerous subject to be talking about here see verse 1 they were in the region of Judea a region ruled by Herod and if we know Mark's gospel and many of you do but there's no reason why you should you'll know why that's such a big issue because back in chapter 6 we were told that Herod had married a woman called Herodias who was Herod's brother's wife. Herod had taken his brother's wife for himself. Can you imagine the tension in the air when they met up for a family get-together at Christmas? But this was more than just a delicate subject to be avoided. More than an elephant in the room in the Herod household. If this elephant were disturbed, it would crush you. And in Mark chapter 6, that is what happened. We learn that John the Baptist had told Herod that what he did in marrying Herodias was unlawful, that it was wrong, and to cut a long story short, that got John the Baptist beheaded. So to talk about divorce in this region, in public, with a huge crowd gathered around you, that really was asking for trouble. And that was precisely what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted trouble for Jesus. This trap was laid in in an attempt to get rid of Jesus. And here's the trap. Ask Jesus about divorce, and if he upholds God's law, he'll invoke the wrath of Herod, and that'll give him the worst headache he's ever had. Or on the other hand, if Jesus denies God's law, he'll lose the approval of the adoring Jewish crowd. Either way, Jesus cannot win. At least that is the way the Pharisees thought. This was a trap. So we're right to boo and hiss as the Pharisees walk on the stage. And yes, if this were to be made into a movie, the director would do well to lay menacing music on the soundtrack at this point. The Pharisees were real scoundrels. But let's put this in its immediate context, uh, the context of chapter 9. And when we do, we might find that pointing our finger at these unscrupulous Jewish leaders might come back to haunt us. Because you see, the Pharisees here are just another example of people who desire greatness. Granted, they're an extremely, particularly extreme example of the problem of pride, but they're an example all the same. And if you've been here these last weeks, you'll recall that Jesus' disciples had been arguing about being the greatest. Remember, we saw it in chapter 9, verse 34. And the rest of the chapter began to show us the huge danger of pride and of wanting to be... be seen to be someone. 
It's such a danger that Jesus warned that it could lead us to hell. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 43 to 48 last week. Through these last weeks then, we've seen how the problem of pride is a problem for the disciples of old, but it's a problem in us as well. Not just the disciples of old, but in our hearts too. So when we see the corruption of pride in the hearts of the Pharisees and the lengths they will go to to get rid of Jesus to preserve their own place, we must not think that we're above this kind of treachery. We, like the disciples and like the Pharisees, want to be great. And that causes trouble for others. For the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat to them, do you see? He was taking their place as the teacher of God's people. Crowds gathered round him. They hung on his every word. And it made the Pharisees so jealous. Jesus was a serious threat to their great ambition for greatness. So he had to be done away with. He had to be removed. So they laid a trap with this cunning question, verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And before we look at Jesus' reply and engage with this most important question, please note that in the very asking of the question, please note the depths the Pharisees were prepared to sink to in their quest for power. As we've seen already, they asked this question in an attempt to test Jesus. The Pharisees were prepared to raise this issue of divorce just to catch Jesus out. To them, this was just a theological test question, a 15 marker on the religious studies A-level paper. To the Pharisees, it was an academic question, a question they could use to their advantage to gain power. Do you hear how heartless that is? Because you and I know that we can never reduce this issue of divorce purely to the level of theological debate. This is an issue that is deeply personal, highly emotive, extremely painful. Whenever divorce is the outcome, there are rarely winners and always losers. So do you see just how wicked the Pharisees were? And do you see how a desire to be great and to put people down can cause us, make us impervious to the pain caused by our comments and, and questions? Pharisees were so desperate to set Jesus up, catch him out. They had no concern for the people in the crowd, no concern for all those for whom this was an extremely painful issue. Well, look, they raised the question and Mark recorded it here, so we must engage with it. But let me assure you that as we do, we will not treat it as a purely academic question. Many of us here, perhaps most, have been affected by divorce in one way or another. Our own divorce or that of a parent or, or, or another family member. We'll have friends who've gone through the pain of divorce. People who we, we, we care for deeply. Some here today are living through the pain of separation right now. Others in a deeply unhappy marriage and might well be thinking that divorce is the only escape route to happiness. So as we consider this this morning, I know it's not a purely theoretical issue. It's far more personal than that. And if it helps you to know, let me tell you, it isn't theoretical for me either. My mum came from a divorced home. Her parents, my grandparents, divorced when my mum was just six years old. And that was back in the 1930s when divorce was socially unacceptable. My grandparents' divorce had a huge impact on my mum. Not only as she was growing up, but in some measure it shaped the rest of her life. So as we talk about these verses, I know it's going to touch raw nerves and bring to the surface emotions that may well, we may well wish we could leave buried. So we proceed with pastoral sensitivity. 
It might also help us as we listen in to remember that as we're listening to Jesus, we are listening to the most loving man who ever lived. And to remember that he was speaking into a context where there wasn't universal agreement on this issue. And to remember that whatever he said was going to get him into trouble and could possibly get him killed. Even Jesus was not unaffected by this issue. Well, with all that in mind, let's get back to the question and our, our second point, of the debate. Verses 2 to 9. Verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus replied, verse 3, what did Moses command you? There's a couple of things that are fascinating about the response before we go on. First, remember the Pharisees were trying to test Jesus to trap him, but see here that it's never a smart move to do that. It's never clever to try and outsmart the one who created all things. Be sure, if we start asking Jesus prosecuting questions, the table will very quickly be turned on us, as it is here in verse 3. We'll soon find ourselves in the dock facing tricky questions ourselves. Of course, that's not to say that we shouldn't question the Christian faith. The great thing about Christianity is that it is thoroughly robust and can stand up to very serious scrutiny. No, my point rather is about the way we ask questions. If we're trying to catch Jesus out, to outfox him, to prove him wrong, back him into a corner, we are on a hiding to nothing, and in no time we'll find ourselves in the dock answering the questions. The second thing to note from Jesus' response in verse 3 is that Jesus immediately turns to the Bible. Isn't that striking? Here is the creator of all things, the one who knows everything because he made everything, the one who described himself back in chapter 9 as the son of man, the one who has all authority in the entire universe. And so if anyone can speak authoritatively out of his own knowledge, it is Jesus, yet even he turns to the Bible as his authority. Isn't that striking? And what might be even more striking to us is that he specifically turns to the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, those books written by Moses, the first part of the Old Testament. As far as Jesus is concerned, the Old Testament will give us an authoritative word on the subject and on any, any, any subject come to that. So Jesus said to the Pharisees, what does Moses say on the subject? Well, you know the Bible. He says, what about the first five books, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses? What do they say about divorce? And the Pharisees replied, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a, divorce, a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're referring here to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Now remember, the Pharisees were Bible people. They read their Bibles, they studied their Bibles, they loved their Bibles, they tried to live by their Bible. They were Bible people. But oh dear, despite all that, these leaders didn't know how to handle their Bible. Over the years, I've had a number of people say to me, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And of course, they are absolutely right. Take a verse out of its context, and you can make the Bible say all sorts of things that it doesn't actually say. And desperately, that is what the Pharisees are doing here. And that is not my assessment, but the conclusion of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. Because we see in the following verses, Jesus goes on to correct their understanding and their handling of the Bible. No doubt these Pharisees could quote chapter and verse. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
They could quote the Bible, but they didn't understand the Bible. They plucked a verse out of the Bible, a verse that speaks about divorce certificates, and they concluded God permits divorce. But Jesus replied, verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is only written in the scriptures because we're sinful, because we don't live according to God's ways, because, and the phrase here is very instructive, verse 5, because we have hard hearts. It's important that we grab hold of that phrase because Jesus has already talked about the danger of hard hearts in Mark's gospel. If you want the verses, chapter 6, verse 52, and chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus speaks about hardness of heart impeding our ability to understand the truth about him. Because they had hard hearts, they didn't understand about him, it says. Hearts stop us from understanding God's word. Hard hearts stop us from understanding God's word and from following Jesus and from accepting his teaching. Hardness of heart leads us away from God. Hard-heartedness will kill us spiritually just as the hardening of the arteries will kill us physically. Hard-heartedness is something we should avoid like the coronavirus. Jesus says here, divorce is a provision written in God's law for those with hard hearts. It's written for those who refuse to go God's way. So it's not something any believer should want. What God actually wants is lifelong committed marriages. And Jesus shows that by putting Deuteronomy chapter 24 in its context. That is, in its biblical context. And uh, do you see that's what Jesus does for us next? By turning to the first book of the Bible. And the very first chapters of the very first book of the Bible. Jesus turns to Genesis chapter 2. Remember the question back in verse 2? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, let me teach you about marriage. That's quite instructive, isn't it? First, verse 6, marriage is between one man and one woman, verse 6. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus look at how we were created. God made us male and female. And God ordained marriage to be between a man and a woman. That is biblical marriage, between one man and one woman. And this is not just a command for times past. It's not just a command for Adam and Eve. If you've never seen this before, look closely at verse 7. A man will leave his father and his mother. This can't be a command for Adam alone because Adam didn't have a mother and father. He was made out of the dust of the earth. This is very helpful in our sexually confused culture. Here is a foundational statement about marriage, a statement that Jesus affirms and gives his endorsement, written before culture at the beginning of creation, verse 6, written before culture in order to give us an enduring pattern for marriage through all cultures. In taking us back to Genesis chapter 2, Jesus is telling us God's plan for marriage for all time, between one man and one woman, and for life, verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. For life, once joined, never to be separated. 
this corrects so many misunderstandings about marriage. Um, marriage is, as people sometimes say, it's much more than a piece of paper. Marriage is more than a legal agreement that can subsequently be undone if you go through the necessary legal steps. When a man and woman get married, something supernatural happens. Verse 8, the two become one flesh, joined together. In marriage, God joins a man and a woman together supernaturally. And verse 9, what God has joined together, let no one divide. Words, incidentally, that are said at every Church of England wedding in the country. So to divorce is to undo what God has joined together. You see what Jesus is doing here, saying to the Pharisees, he says, if only you read Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the context of Genesis 2, you'd know that God designed marriage to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman, a union in which God joins a man and a woman together, and then you'd know that any provision of divorce is not what God wants. So what God has joined together don't separate. Yes, divorce is something God legislates for, but not something he designed or wants. And so those of us who are followers of his should never seek it, for that is to harden your heart against God. And that is a very dangerous thing to do. And interestingly, Mark records no other words said between Jesus and the Pharisees after this point. He says, it's as if Jesus has spoken... The word of God has spoken, and that's the end of the debate. Now, look, I know there's lots of other things that need to be said. I'll come on to some other things in a moment. But there's a sense in which there's the final word. Which leads us, thirdly, to to the conclusion. Uh, Verses 9 to 12. Uh, Jesus has given us a conclusion in verse 9. Don't separate that which God has joined. But there's more. But... The next bit, interestingly, is only given to the disciples. See, the next thing we hear is that Jesus and his disciples have left the Pharisees and the crowd, and they're in a house somewhere. Verse 10, when they're in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Here then is Jesus giving his followers further instruction on the issue. Away from those who oppose him, Jesus spells out what this means. And he says, to those who follow Jesus, we must know that to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. Now look, I know this is a complex issue, a very personal and painful issue. And I know that when Matthew records Jesus' teaching on divorce, he has more to say than this. I I know this raises questions. It raises questions for those who are divorced and remarried. It raises questions for those who are in abusive relationships. It raises questions for those whose spouse commits adultery and then leaves them. There are any number of very complex and personal issues that this is sure to raise. Let me assure you that, as the Bible puts it, you know, um, you know, talks about the unforgivable sin. Let me assure you that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's not, it's not that at all. Please know that we're, we're here to help and, and ready to talk through the issues that this has raised. I am very grateful to my colleague Pete Scammon and the way he's been taking us through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 on Sunday evenings. Um, he's helpfully dealt with some of these issues. You, you may like to listen to those sermons online if you've not heard them already. 
But also, please speak to someone if, if any of this troubles you. We are here to help. We believe in a gospel of grace. And we all know that we failed when it comes to sex and relationships. All of us, we've all failed. So talk to a trusted friend. Come and talk to me if you feel you'd like to do that. Or, or Pete, who's been leading these, uh, these studies on Sunday evenings. Or, or Andy, who's leading the service today. Or, or Sonia Crosley or Chris Conn on the pastoral care team. But as we draw this to a close this morning, let's think about all this in the immediate context of chapters 8 and 9. What I've been grappling with this week is why does this come here? Now, we began this morning in chapter 8 where we saw that to follow Jesus means denying ourselves. And deny ourselves and take up our cross means listening to Jesus and bringing our lives in line with his words, even when he says things that are not culturally acceptable and even when he says things that affect us personally. And then remember the immediate context of chapter 9, which I've already touched on. One of the things that has most struck me this week is that Jesus was asked about divorce, but he talked about marriage. And when we see that in the context of chapter 9, this says something very powerful about how we should live our Christian marriages. See, if you've been with us these last two weeks, you'll know the issue in Mark chapter 9. You can turn back to it if you like, but there's no need to. Mark chapter 9, verse 34, the disciples were arguing about being the greatest. They had a serious problem with pride. And that had an adverse effect on the way they related to others, always putting people down. And chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus taught that to be great in his kingdom meant to be the servant of all. That's greatness, serving others. And so at the end of the chapter, chapter 9, verse 50, we saw this right at the end of last week, Jesus taught us to be in the habit of regular, healthy, sober self-assessment because when I see myself as I really am, then I will live at peace with others, verse 50. Now, when you read chapter 10 in, the, in, the, in, in that context, it has huge impact on marriage. As I explain what I'm about to explain, I'm desperate to avoid sounding superficial or simplistic. I know that married life is not easy. It's complex. But all of this has struck me this week, that if everyone in a marriage was aware of the destructive nature of pride and of the danger of the desire to be great and to rule over others and have other people serve us, and if, on the other hand, we had a desire to be the, the servant in our marriages... Well, then a lot of marriages would be a lot better and a number of relationships that break down would be reduced. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, but I just don't love him, her anymore. Well, just listen in to this next bit and consider how you can serve them. And by serving them, you will be loving them. You might even find that by serving them, you find yourself loving them all the more. Now, I don't have time to apply this to every aspect of marriage, but as I close, let's walk through the rooms of our houses and apply this to our marriages. Let's start in the kitchen. As I stand in the kitchen, what a difference it would make to my marriage if I were to think, I'm here to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. If I have that approach, I'm not going to do my fair share of housework. Oh, no, I'm going to do more than my fair share of the housework because I'm here to serve. And if it happens that I do more than you, that's okay, because I'm here to serve. Just think what a difference it would make if both parties in a marriage lived like that, both eager to serve the other. Can you imagine how many arguments would be eradicated? 
Let's go from the kitchen to the nursery. I'm here to serve my children and my spouse. I'm, I'm going to change the nappy, even if it's not my turn, even if I've changed the last 10 nappies. And listen, I'm a father of twins. I know about changing nappies. And I'm going to play with the children, even though I'd rather be doing something else, anything else, because I'm here to serve. I'm going to put my own hobbies and wants to one side for the family. What a difference it would make if that were my attitude in my family. Now let's go into the bedroom, shall we? And again, I must have the attitude towards my wife. I'm here to serve you, to please you. I'm not here to demand my rights. I'm not here purely for my own gratification. What difference that would make in bed? Look, sex can so often be such a huge cause of disgruntlement in marriage. Again, it's complex. But having a desire to please the other is certainly not going to do any harm in your marriage. And of course, if I view sex as a way of serving my wife, I'm certainly not going to have an affair. How would that serve her? And from the bedroom, let's go to the garage and get in the car. And here we are on a day off with our spouse. And if we have them, the children, it's a family day out. And again, I'm thinking I'm here to serve. And so I ask, where do you want to go, my love? How can I make this a great day for you? And on holidays, I'm going to serve my family, but so often on vacation, we stop serving. This is my time to flop. So everyone flops, and one person is left making the picnic, and they're getting steamed up thinking, I'd love to flop too. Everyone else has flopped, so I've got to make the, the sandwiches. Selfishness on holiday is very destructive. What a difference when my attitude towards my wife is, this is your holiday too, and while we're on holiday, I'm going to serve you. Look, I could go on. My time is well and truly gone, so I need to stop. I'll leave it up to you to work through the rooms of your house and work out how you can deny yourself, take up your cross in every aspect of your marriage and serve the other. I'm not naively thinking that this is the whole story. There are issues of abuse and unreasonable behavior and, of course, adultery. It's extremely complex. I'm not suggesting that it's easy. Can you see that if we had a different attitude in marriage, our marriages would be much better? Just try it this week. Think to yourself, I'm not the greatest. I am not king. I have no right to be served. No, I'm following the king who is great and yet who served me. And so now I'm here to serve others. And then start to serve your wife. And if you both live that way, in just a week, your marriage will be better. If it's good, even better. If it's average, it'll be good. If you're struggling, no, it's not a magic wand. But this will improve your marriage. I'm way over time. Jesus asked about divorce, was asked about divorce. He talked about marriage. Live for others. That's how Jesus would have us live. When a couple live like that, they'll rarely think, have to think about divorce. Jesus' teaching is very countercultural. It won't be popular, but when we live it, well, then we'll see the wisdom of it and indeed know the blessing of it. Let's pray together. Well, a moment of silence. So we've talked about really big and some very personal issues. So a moment of silence for you to reflect on what you've heard.
And if you feel you'd like to, to in your, the own quietness of your heart, talk to God about it. Now, Father, we've been thinking about some, some enormous issues and extremely personal and painful issues. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here for whom just the raising of the subject has been awkward and difficult and painful this morning. Uh, please would you give each one uh, an awareness of your loving kindness towards them please would you help all of us to think carefully about how we can rightly engage with this issue and to begin to think Jesus thoughts on divorce and marriage rather than the thoughts of the culture and please help us to be a loving church family where we support one another through the struggles of life and not least of all marriage and so we commit our, the rest of our day into your hands and this time into your hands, thanking you for time together and praying you would encourage us and spur us on towards godliness and love and good deeds towards one another. Amen.